0: So anyone out there like to read a good book? A few of you? I I feel like that's something that's kind of being lost on this next generation. They don't really like to dig into books. And I, although my family is probably laughing because they're probably like, well, we haven't seen her crack open a book in like a year. (laughs) Um, But when I get into a book, I love it. I love to read a good book and get lost in the story and get lost in the characters and imagine what they look like and what they're feeling and what the, the, the scene looks like and all of that. Maybe it's the performer in me, but I just love it. And when they turn my good books into movies and they wreck everything that I thought... Or I see the movie before I read the book, and then all I can think about is Matt Damon, is that character, and it just wrecks it all for me. But I love a good book. And the Gospel of John is a really good book. And I love to dig in. I've loved hearing uh, the other pastors preach these last few weeks and dig into the story of John, the Gospel of John, and of Jesus and what the people, his disciples, and everybody surrounding him were thinking and feeling in these moments. And I have to remind myself and remind you that they're present with Jesus in these moments. They don't know what's to come. They don't know the end of the story like we do. They're present at the beginning of these miracles. They're present as he says these words that, that give life and change lives. It's all new and fresh to them. And I like to put myself in that story and try to imagine what they are feeling in those moments. And the gospel of John is not quite as narrative as the other gospels. It may be a bit simpler, but it's incredibly profound. Jesus becomes real in this Gospel and even though the series has been 12 it's going to be 12 weeks long when we get to the to the end of it we're in week 7 even though it's kind of long for for most of our sermon series we are barely going to touch on the myriad of stories that are in this gospel in the gospel of john it's not meant to be difficult to understand it's not really hard to understand. It's not for the, the intellectually or religious elite. No, it is for everyone. It was written in a way that this message could be understood by everyone. Now, following it and obeying it is not easy. But understanding it is not so hard. He's not trying to disguise anything here. And the story we're going to look at today is in John chapter 12, starting in verse 20. If you want to look it up, it's on page 894, and the Bible's here in the room. And those of you online, welcome. We're so glad you're here. You can grab a Bible at home. Maybe you brought your Bible here today. Um, You can look on the app. I'm sure that it's it's there on the app. Um, So welcome to everybody in the room and online. So glad you're here. And I also want to say this to you before we go any further. Maybe you've been here and you've been listening to John and you're going to listen to today and you're just like, I don't know, I'm not really very sure about this whole thing. I'm actually not very sure about the Bible. I don't get it. I don't understand it. I have a lot of questions. It doesn't make sense to me. I'm a little bit skeptical about it, actually. Well, we have a class for you. Starting tomorrow night, our lead pastor, Barry Rodriguez, is leading a four-week class for skeptics, Bible skeptics. And if this is you, please come. This is going to be an amazing four weeks where we, uh, where he digs into the Bible with us and talks about what some of the questions, it's a great place to come in question. Come with all of your questions. He may not have all the answers, but he's certainly going to go there with you. And I would encourage you, even if you're not a skeptic yourself, let's just be honest. In the world we live in today, we all know a skeptic or 20. And this would be a great resource for you to know how to have some of those hard conversations with the skeptics in your life. So that starts tomorrow night, Monday night, uh, here, and we would love to have you be a part of that. I'm sure you can find out more information online. Um, I'm not sure if we have to register or not, but look it up online and it'll give you all the information It's 7 o'clock tomorrow night. We'd love to have you here. So last week, we left off with uh, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Tim talked about this. If you didn't hear the message, I would encourage you to look it up and listen to it or watch it. And this would be Jesus' final and most amazing miracle. And then after that, he goes back to Lazarus' house. He, uh, his sister, Lazarus' sister, anoints Jesus' feet with expensive perfume. And Jesus says something very telling in that moment. He says, this anointing was for the day of my burial. Foreshadowing. Everyone is now wanting to see Jesus and Lazarus. Lazarus has become quite the star at this moment too. And the chief priests are not only plotting at this moment to kill Jesus, but to also kill Lazarus because it was on account of him, as you see in verses 9 and 11, that many of the Jews were deserting and were believing in Jesus. And then comes the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday. Jesus is sweeping through the city and people are clamoring to see him and touch him. They're bowing down with palm branches and saying, Hail, King of Israel, the prophecy is being fulfilled. They don't know it yet, but they soon will. In chapter 12, verses 17 and 18, right before we're, we're getting to where we are, many in the crowd, it says many in the crowd had seen Jesus call Lazarus from the tomb, raising him from the dead, and they were telling others about it. That was the reason so many went out to meet him, because they had heard about his, the miracu- this miraculous sign. It is this feeling of power, powerlessness in the face of this charismatic and potentially dangerous figure that Jesus has become— that causes the Pharisees to seek his death. Isn't it ironic that Lazarus' resurrection will lead to the crucifixion and death of Jesus? And at the end of this section, that's going to lead right into the section that we're looking at today, verse 19 says this. Then the Pharisees said to each other, there's nothing we can do. Look, look, Everyone has gone after him. They indicate the whole world has gone after him. Now that's a bit of hyperbole on their part. It's not quite the whole world. Yes, there's a lot of people there for Passover, but it's not the whole world. But what's interesting is once the Pharisees enact the plan that they are plotting then to get rid of Jesus, the whole world will know him. So that's the last thing that happens as we're getting ready to move into the passage that we're looking at today. So we're really going to dig in to this story because we're going to look at 13 verses here, starting in verse 20. And there is so much packed into these verses. And so we're really going to dig in to, to this passage. And it's interesting, before, um, it, before the 915 service, someone walked up to me and they were like, oh, I wondered who was speaking today. I always look ahead at the, um, the app notes, and I thought by looking at them, that it was Tim again. <laughs> I was like, surprise, it's not Tim. Um, which that's how, what a deep dive I did this week. So... Um, <laughs> Here's the thing, Um, I'm not Tim, so you're going to see me looking at my notes a little bit more, because I did dig deep, and I want to make sure that I'm saying everything that I need to say, and I'm saying it correctly, because I'm not a biblical scholar like Tim. But I did use a lot of his notes, because the man is smart, and I love him, and I'm proud to be uh, around him. So anyway, I'm going to look at my notes a little more because I want to make sure that I'm saying exactly what is supposed to be said. But let's dig deep here. Verse 20, starting in verse 20, uh, chapter 12. Some Greeks who had come to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration paid a visit to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. Okay, stop there. So are these truly Greek people or Hellenized Jews who spoke Greek and acted like Greek people? Really doesn't matter. Regardless, it indicates Jesus' openness to all people, to the Gentiles. Jesus was called to be a light to all people, and at this moment, this represents, in this scripture, in this passage, all people. The Greeks are very symbolic that Jews and Gentiles are now all coming to see Jesus. No wonder the Pharisees are nervous. Continuing on, verse 21, they said, sir, we want to meet Jesus. So Philip told Andrew about it, and they went together to ask Jesus. Why did they go to Philip? Well, Philip and Andrew are the only two disciples with Greek names. So these Greeks sought them out. These Greeks were probably nervous about asking to get an audience with Jesus. So they approached someone that they think might be safe the Greeks are outsiders. They're looking in. They want an introduction. Jesus is famous now. Everybody knows who he is since the resurrection of Lazarus. Have you ever wanted to meet someone famous and they're right there and you're not quite sure how to get that hookup, how to get that introduction? That's what they're doing. Well, he's got a Greek name. Let's ask him. Philip, can, can we meet him? I back when when, uh, discovering Broadway, this this group uh, that that um, incubates shows that are going to go to to Broadway someday, they did rehearsals here back in the fall, and Adam Pascal, who was an original cast member of the musical Rent, which I saw the original cast back in 1990 something, was here. He was one of the actors. And I am telling you, I was grabbing everybody's sleeve trying to get an an intro to Adam Pascal. I mean, I just wanted, so I I imagine that's what these Greeks were like, hey, um, can you hook me up with an intro to, uh, to the big guy over there? And so they're very polite about their request, sir, we want to meet Jesus. Well, apparently Philip must feel like he needs someone to go along with him. Maybe he's nervous about it. So he goes and gets Andrew. And they both go to make this request of Jesus. Which parents, isn't that just the way it happens? Your kids need to make a request of you so they bring a friend or a sibling along with them so that you'll say yes or they won't get in as much trouble for asking. How many times did my kids come to me and ask if a friend could spend the night while the friend was standing right next to them? (laughs) Then what are you supposed to say? So... Philip and Andrew go and make this request of Jesus. And at this moment, the Greeks kind of disappear from the story. Like, we don't, we don't know if they get that introduction. We don't know if they even hear what Jesus says next. We have no idea. So as Jesus responds in these next verses, um, we don't know if the Greeks are there, but their presence in those first verses were very important. And they set up some very important things. Their visit illustrates the truth of the Pharisees' statement, look, the whole world has gone after him. They represent the whole world. Their visit prompts Jesus to acknowledge acknowledge that his hour has come. And you will hear him say that in a few verses. He acknowledges the hour is here. And their visit prompts Jesus to announce that when he is lifted up, he will draw all people, all people to himself. What Jesus goes on to say in the following verses is pretty much a summary of everything he has said and done up into this point. Looking at verse 23, Jesus replied, Now the time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. There are three earlier references into this, uh, in this gospel about Jesus's hour. At Cana, Jesus said to his mother in chapter 2, verse 4, my hour has not yet come. In Jerusalem, in chapter 7, verse 30, he says, it says they sought therefore to take him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And then in chapter 8, verse 20, in the temple, no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Now finally, Jesus announces that his hour has come. The turning point was the raising of Lazarus in response to which the whole world comes seeking Jesus, causing the opposition to Jesus to intensify. The son of man, when he calls himself It says, now the time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. That's referencing Daniel 7, where Daniel says, 7 verse 13, As my vision continued that night, I saw someone like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. And then it goes on to say uh, in Daniel that this son of man was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world. All would obey him. His rule would be eternal. His kingdom will never be destroyed. And Jesus is saying in this moment, hey, guess what? It's me. I am the son of man. And the time has come for me to enter into my glory my rule will be eternal. The Greeks may want to have seen him now, to have been introduced in that moment, and we don't know if they were or not. But Jesus' response isn't, he doesn't say to Philip and Andrew, hey, bring them on over. No, what he says is, they may not see me now, but they will see me, just as all will see me. And not only will they see me they will be drawn to me, the Son of Man. He says the Son of Man will enter into his glory. And to be glorified meant given the radiance of the presence of God. The time had come for his full identity to be revealed, his full essence. But first, There would be humiliation and anguish to get to that glorification. Those that just a few verses ago were crying Hosanna as he entered in the triumphal entry will be screaming crucify him in just a few verses. We know that now, but in this moment, no one with him has any idea of what he's talking about, what is to come. This leads right into verse 24, where he says, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone, but its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. This seems to contradict itself, that death equals life, but it made sense to the crowd then. Many of them were farmers, many of them understood that a kernel of wheat must die in the soil, to produce more kernels, to produce more life. And Jesus is just about to show this to them. The eternal life for many will come through the sacrifice of the one. And he is saying to them and to us now, we must let go of our selfish existence our self-centered lives to produce the fruit that is available to us through surrender to Jesus and the working of the Holy Spirit. We have to die to self to produce fruit. Jesus' followers throughout history and here today must be planted. Jesus continues with this idea and actually intensifies it in verse 25. Those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. The upside down world of Jesus. He's turning it upside down again. Those who love their life outside of Jesus in this world will lose it. The Greek word for lose is apolomai, which means destroy. When you create a life that you think you love outside of Jesus, you destroy yourself. That's what it means. You destroy yourself. But when you hate your life without Jesus, you gain life Forever the only life worth loving and living is life centered around Jesus. And very soon, Jesus will set his earthly life completely aside to gain eternal life for everyone. Verse 26, anyone who wants to serve me must follow me because my servants must be where I am and the Father will honor anyone who serves me So the word for servant is diakonos, waiter, one who serves another's needs, follows and cares for others. The road to glory is through servanthood. Jesus has exemplified that throughout his entire life on earth and he will soon exemplify it in the most powerful way in his death. He is asking the same of those who do, and those who will follow him he says it in mark 8:34 if any of you wants to be my follower you must give up your own way take up your cross and follow me must give up your own way give up your life outside of jesus hate your life outside of jesus take up your cross die to yourself Die to yourself daily, absolute surrender and follow me. Do what I do. Serve and love others in the way that I do. Like I said, Mark may not be hard to understand, or uh, John may not be hard to understand, but very hard to implement, very hard to follow and obey. The Father will glorify Jesus and those who serve him. God will honor the servant rather than the ruler. Verse 27, now my soul is deeply troubled. Should I pray, Father, save me from this hour? But this is the very reason I came. Father, bring glory to your name. Jesus, again, is the only one here that knows what is to come. And he's troubled by it. It says, now my soul is deeply troubled. The word became flesh. Human flesh that feels all of the emotions that humans feel. Of course, he knows what's coming. A terrible, humiliating, excruciating death. And John shows us Jesus' internal struggle right here and now. Well before we get to Gethsemane. Should he pray, Father, save me from this hour? And is that phrase a question or a statement, Father, save me from this hour? Is he asking the Father to save him from that hour or declaring, pleading, Father, save me from this hour? Well, according to the commentary of Tim Ayers, the Greek has no question mark there which means that Jesus is declaring and pleading, Father, save me, save me from this. The human part of Jesus is fearful, save me from this. And then in the next breath, he says, Father, bring glory to your name. Fearful Jesus saying, Father, save me from this. And in the next breath saying, no, I will obey. I am scared, but I will obey, and I will follow through in the mission that you have called me to do, and I will bring glory to your name. Not a resolved, confident Jesus, but a frightened, obedient one. He will face his fears and lay down his life, and his Father will be glorified. And then heaven answers In the next verses, then a voice spoke from heaven saying, I have already brought glory to my name and I will do so again. When the crowd heard the voice, some thought it was thunder while others declared an angel had spoken to him. Okay, so everyone's freaking out at this point. They're like, a voice from where? What is happening? Is it thunder? What's happening? A voice from the sky. John says, this is a voice from heaven. And he is saying, my name has been glorified through Jesus' obedience to the mission And it will come again through the risen Christ. And just as everything that happens with Jesus, there's varying levels of understanding right here. Some in the crowd think it's thunder. Some hear what's being said, but they don't understand it. Those that are far from Jesus. And then his followers hear it and might understand what is being said, but not to the full extent. They don't know what is to come next. So while the crowd is debating and arguing over this, Jesus says, the voice was for your benefit, not mine. The time for judging this world has come. When Satan, the ruler of this world, will be cast out and when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to myself. He said this to indicate how he was going to die. The voice is for you. Jesus already knows all of this. But the crowd does not. God is talking to them. They need to acknowledge who Jesus is. The old order is done. It's about to be a new king and a new kingdom, reversing the fall of Adam. Disobedience had separated people from God, and Jesus' perfect obedience would give those same people the opportunity to be in relationship with God. A return to Eden. And he will be lifted up. The Greek word hoopsu, which I I misspelled it, not them, it's H U P S O O, means lifted up in Greek. And this has two meanings. It means to physically be lifted up, which Jesus will be on the cross, and to exalt or give honor. And both are about to happen to Jesus. He will be physically lifted up on that cross. And then he will be given honor and glory as the risen king. And he will draw everyone to himself. Everyone. All his followers. The Greeks that had come to see him. The gospel was for all. He was making that clear right here, just as he did in John 3, 16 and 17. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. That's how God, the true God, God, The God of astonishing, generous love would be glorified. Not through battle or swords or attack. That doesn't glorify the creator God, although that's what they wanted and they expected and maybe sometimes what we want. Swords don't glorify. Love does. Self-sacrificing love. And that's the passage. There's so much packed in there. All of what Jesus has been about in his ministry is in this passage. And I think there are three overall big takeaways here that we need to take away from this. Points that Jesus is trying to make about what it means to follow him. And the first one is I must die to myself. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives, dying to myself. And we do this to give him all the glory. The second part of 27, but this is the very reason I came. Father, Bring glory to your name, and to gain eternal life. Twenty-five. Those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. And all of this works together. I desire to give all the, all the glory to God in my life, through my life. And the only way to do that is to die to myself, die to my ways, die to my selfishness, my self-promotion, my self-preservation, to be his servant, to do his works, to love his people. Put myself aside. Self-sacrificing love. And then when I die to myself... When I, when I hate and despise my life without Jesus in it, then I give all glory and honor and praise and adoration to him. My life becomes a humble offering, a beautiful aroma, a glimmering light that draws everyone to him. It's beautiful and oh so hard. It's always so easy to think that what I want my desires, my happiness will bring me life. But the best life is when I open myself up to what he wants for me. And it's a daily laying down my life and picking up that cross. And some days I do it really, really poorly. But when I do it, my life is fuller and richer than anything I ever could have imagined. And that's what He has available to all of us. Die to yourself and center your life on Him. Do you believe this? Do you believe dying to yourself will lead to the best possible life here and now and to eternal life after? Paul says in Philippians 1 21, for to me, living means living for Christ, and dying is even better. True living is dying to self, just like Jesus, and dying to ourselves means an eternal Eden. Do you believe that? And if you do, will you die to yourself? And what does that look like for you? For some, it might be an initial step. Maybe you've never taken that first step, that first surrender to Jesus, absolute surrender to the Savior. Maybe that's your step today. For others, it may be letting go of pieces that you've been hanging on to for years. Let go. Give it to him. Let him it work in and through it, and see how rich and beautiful your life can be. Letting go of a life outside of him. So what do you need to let go of? What do you need to surrender? So you can truly die to yourself and open your whole self up to Jesus and be his servant. Jesus died to himself so that you can live. Now you must die to yourself so that you can live. And so that others can live as they see you and see Jesus in you now and forever. The gospel is for everyone, not just who we choose, not just who we like. And we have to die to ourselves and to our selfish ways in order to make room in the kingdom for everyone. The world is watching us. This message is for all of them, not just us. And we're not gonna win them over with power and battle, but with self-sacrificing, humble love, the other's first humble journey of Jesus. Jesus sacrificed himself for the message of the gospel. Will you? Jesus was determined to bring glory to his father even when he was troubled and fearful. Will you? Jesus died to himself to give others life. Now and forever. Will you? That's what love does. It pursues blindly, unflinchingly, and without end. When you go after something you love, you'll do anything it takes to get it, even if it costs everything. It may cost everything. It may feel like it costs everything. But it's death to self so that you can truly live now and forever. Do you believe that? Let's pray. Lord, my prayer is as we sit here in these next moments and then as we leave this place in a few moments that we would continue to grapple with this passage with the words that you had to say to the people standing there that day in that moment and those words and what they mean to us now. May we take that next step of surrender of dying to ourselves whatever that looks like That we may surrender our whole selves to you lord so that we may have life that we may give life now and forever it's in your name we pray amen thanks for watching but don't stop there we want you to find community at grace church and the first step in doing that is going to gracechurch.us slash hub There you'll find other sermons, details about upcoming events, and other important announcements. And make sure you subscribe to our channel so you don't miss out when we post something new. Thanks again for watching. We'll see you next time.